Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green. So, is animal suffering evidence against the existence of God? Well, if we're examining whether the kind, degree, and distribution of animal suffering is evidence against theism, let's take stock of what it is we're talking about. To quote Richard Dawkins in River Out of Eden, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive, others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear, others are being slowly devoured from within by rasping parasites, thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there is ever a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Typically, naturalists believe that evolution by natural selection accounts for at least the general shape of the biological order. On naturalism, there may be other forces at work, but it's not as if there's any unsurpassably great being that had anything to do with evolution. And unlike God, natural selection is an amoral, quote-unquote, designer. On theism, by contrast, reality is fundamentally caring. Given the hundreds of millions of years of predation, carnivory, starvation, parasitism, fear, and pain that has taken place on Earth, we have to honestly ask ourselves whether this is the way a perfectly loving being would bring about his creation. God had the power to create the biological world in many different ways, including ways in which many millions of creationists already believe he did anyway. It's hard to exaggerate the sheer amount of agony endured by sentient creatures over the eons of evolutionary history, most of which were non-rational, non-moral agents, meaning that many of the attempted responses to the problem of evil don't apply in cases of animal suffering. I'd here like to relay a story from the late philosopher Quentin Smith. Not long ago, I was sleeping in a cabin in the woods and was awoken in the middle of the night by the sounds of a struggle between two animals. Cries of terror and extreme agony rent the night, intermingled with the sounds of jaws snapping bones and flesh being torn from limbs. One animal was being savagely attacked, killed, and then devoured by another. A clearer case of a horrible event in nature, a natural evil, has never been presented to me. It seemed to me self-evident that the natural law that animals must savagely kill and devour each other in order to survive was an evil natural law, and that the obtaining of this law was sufficient evidence that God did not exist. Vast numbers of organisms are designed such that they cannot survive unless they kill and devour each other. Predators could have instead been scavengers or herbivores or some other kind of organism that absorbs energy without tearing sentient creatures limb from limb. If a benevolent designer existed, an unimaginable amount of suffering visited upon confused, limited creatures could easily have been avoided without losing the good of animal creation by actualizing these alternatives. Theists typically believe that God fine-tuned the very laws of nature, carefully balancing them on a razor's edge to bring about his very good creation. Countless teleological arguments from the apparent design of the biological realm have been raised in defense of theism, right into the present. With that in mind, I'd like to focus on one particular kind of evil in our world. Teleological evil occurs in virtue of a thing's natural purpose. It's suffering caused by an organism acting in accordance with one or more of its natural purposes or design plan. The biological order for which God is said to be responsible features much teleological evil. 
To be clear, this is not the problem of unintelligent design. To quote Felipe Leon, The problem of teleological evil differs from the problem of dysteleology, and that while the latter appeals to poor design as evidence against a supremely intelligent designer, the former appeals to good design, in particular design that's well-suited for causing suffering, as evidence against a supremely benevolent designer. To put it crudely, the problem of dysteleology is the problem of stupid design, the problem of teleological evil is the problem of malevolent design. It's one thing to create something that can be misused to cause suffering. A creature may drown in a river, but it's not as if the river has a malevolent purpose or function. But a predator's physical and psychological attributes are aimed at savaging conscious creatures. They are not an unfortunate byproduct, or a misuse of some ability, or a perversion of nature. Malevolence has been built into the very structure of the natural order. Predation in the wild, as I mentioned, is a striking example, not just because it can be so nightmarish, but because it's widespread and ordinary. Predators with sharp teeth and claws tear the flesh off their prey and snap their bones, and often start feeding while they're still alive. The process is sometimes drawn out over days. To quote documentary filmmaker David Attenborough, people who accuse us of putting in too much violence should see what we leave on the cutting room floor. The natural order has been designed such that animals must savagely kill and devour each other just in order to survive. This is a horrible way to live, and it did not have to be this way. But this is the natural order we've been gifted. So what should we make of this designer, whoever or whatever it is? Indifference and amorality seem to be pretty reasonable inferences. Whoever or whatever is responsible for the general shape of the biological order is probably indifferent and amoral. What David Hume called the strange mixture of good and ill which appears in life is easily accounted for on that view. We have to ask honestly, would these facts about animal suffering be facts in a world which is the creation of an omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good being? Maybe, but they are undoubtedly evidence against that hypothesis. Consider the following theorem of probability. The truth of E, some fact about our world, would raise the probability of H if and only if the falsity of E would lower the probability of H. And let me say that again. Some fact about our world, E, would raise the probability of H if and only if the falsity of E would lower the probability of H. If we saw a different pattern in the distribution of suffering in the world, one that was morally intelligible, theists would cite this fact as evidence for theism, and they would be right to do so. It follows that our failure to see any such moral intelligibility is evidence against theism. To quote Michael Humer, As far as we can tell, suffering is randomly distributed in the world, just as it would be if there were no one in charge. There is no pattern suggesting any larger purpose. For example, we don't see suffering distributed according to who would learn the most from it, or who justly deserves to suffer, or any other pattern at all. This doesn't deductively entail that there's no God, but it is, evidentially speaking, as bad for theism as it could be. Of course, there is no animal suffering so appallingly pointless that a theist couldn't imagine an explanation for why an all-good, all-powerful God would continue to behave in a way indistinguishable from non-existence. The question is whether the kind, degree, and distribution of animal suffering in our world is evidence against the existence of God. If we're assessing the question of whether an observation is evidence for a hypothesis, 
we can imagine we'd failed to make that observation. If E supports H, then not E is some disconfirming evidence against H. For this reason, the question of whether the animal suffering I've drawn attention to is evidence against theism is ultimately trivial. A better world would obviously not hurt the case for theism. If we did not see the kind, degree, and distribution of animal suffering in our world that we do, in other words, if there were no teleological evil, if there were not hundreds of millions of years of carnivory and starvation, if there were a moral order to the biological realm, that would certainly help the case for theism. You can't have it both ways. If that would enhance the case for God, as it obviously would, then it's unavoidable that the actual state of our world, with all its moral randomness and all its teleological evil inextricably fused into the biological order, is evidence against the hypothesis that this world was created by a being of unlimited power and goodness. Perhaps we're simply ignorant of the grand divine plan, the theist might object. Maybe you and your limitations are unaware of how everything fits together. In closing, then, I'd like to draw attention to the words of Hume's skeptical character Philo in part 11 of the Dialogues. Did I show you a house or palace where there was not one apartment convenient or agreeable, where the windows, doors, fires, passages, stairs, and the whole economy of the building were the sources of noise, confusion, fatigue, darkness, and the extremes of heat and cold, you would certainly blame the contrivance without any further examination. The architect would in vain display his subtlety and prove to you that if this door or that window were altered, greater ills would ensue. What he says may strictly be true. The alteration of one particular, while the other parts of the building remain, may only augment the inconveniences. But still you would assert in general that if the architect had had skill and good intentions, he might have formed such a plan of the whole, and might have adjusted the parts in such a manner as would have remedied all or most of these inconveniences. His ignorance, or even your own ignorance of such a plan, will never convince you of the impossibility of it. If you find any inconveniences and deformities in the building, you will always, without entering into any detail, condemn the architect. Thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.